Welcome to the brand new Psycho Kitty podcast with yours truly, Psycho Kitty. We're going to be having a series of people come in and just sit down and talk. It's low-stress conversation, just some fun, interesting people I happen to find. And starting us off is the artist Midori. Hey, how's it going? Good to be here. Welcome. Thank you for getting us started. Um, we've known each other for a long time, but for people that have just found the podcast, what makes you Midori? Uh, what makes me Midori? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> just just go ahead and put me put me into it. Well, Plus, yeah. well I, I've, you've had a very long career and you've done many different things. And like uh, right now, we recently just did this magical night at the Asian Art Museum. Oh my god, that was so amazing! That was so absolutely amazing. Yeah. Okay. So, what makes me me? Well, let's see. Um, uh jeez, I I am a restless and creative mind. Um, my thought pattern seems to bend in all sorts of interesting directions. I seem to need a lot of level of stimulation and. Uh, thought and good conversations and adventures in my life. And you yeah. do travel the world. Yeah, and you know the funny thing is, I I, I want to travel more. <laughs> um, I yeah, I travel for my living. I travel all over the place teaching classes on all sorts of things around, mostly around sexuality, but not limited to. And that you know, it's essentially I engineered this weird career as an excuse to travel. But mostly I end up traveling to major cities. So there are other travels that I love doing that involve more the outdoorsy stuff. Right. It's like uh, one of my favorite things that you've said is that, you know, your address is in San Francisco, but you live on the plane. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. My mail goes to San Francisco. Yep. I live on an airplane. Because, I mean, I first met you back in Chicago mm -hmm. at, um, was it, uh, it was at the Double Door at uh, Red, White, and Blue I think so. Oh my God! Wow. Back, uh, Black Market Chicago was a a fetish event. Uh, it was a fetish store and event producer, and they would would do these great, fun, elaborate nightclub events that were pretty much you know commercials for their gear, mm -hmm. but they always couched it in some kind of fun theatrical way. You know. Uh, modeling vignettes and they, stuff. They made parties, so you yeah. had an excuse to wear all this fun stuff yeah. because people wanted to buy all this fun, sexy clothing. But then, what do you do with it? Yeah, I mean, you sit around what you know, uh, bake cookies in it. No, so you needed well, a place. I'm to sure wear there's it. a fetish for that too. <laughs> yeah, there is. I'm sure. Um, but you know, you needed a place to go wear it and enjoy it and be with others who enjoyed it. So um, that was really smart. Yeah, and mm -hmm. it was also a lot of fun. I I've done a few. I mean, like there were a few shows. With uh, Black Market Chicago back then, mm -hmm. uh, Double Door, uh, Dome Room, and it, we're talking like what, fifteen years ago? Oh, hush, <laughs> just, just hush. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's just the fact that I've been in this city for for it'll be ten years in October. Wow, damn. Uh, but it is one of my fond memories of sitting backstage at the end of the night, you, me, and I think it was uh, Persephone all complaining about walking around and our feet hurting from yep, high heels. Yep. And I had the brilliant idea of grabbing the beer tub with water. Oh, God, I totally remember that. Yeah, taking the last few beer bottles out of the tub yeah. and just sitting on the floor and us soaking our feet in the ice water. Oh, that was so that was so smart. That was so brilliant. Yeah. Uh, another one, uh, there was also the... Another one of the shows that we were doing for... Uh, 
Bex Latex was one of the other showcases. Mm-hmm. And I just remember the in and out costume changes and just by the middle of the show and so many people changing in the same spot, all the spray lube uh-huh. that had then migrated to the left over uh-huh. the floor and we were just sliding back and forth. Uh-huh. And, and it's like, so here's a little hint if you're doing a latex show for the first time and you need to do a lot of costume changes, get a bit of disposable rug to put down to change when you oh, spray yeah. people down. Yeah, I think you can just go to like a, a carpet shop and get in the remnant section. Yeah, get some scraps. Oh, yeah, that'd be perfect because it gives just enough traction. Yeah, Just to absorb the lube so that way you're not mm-hmm. sliding. In. And a lot of us were, you know, bare feet and stuff. Oh, God, in the high heels, it's lethal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, the problems we have. Oh. <laughs> well, it's like I, I love those kind of parties. I mean, mm-hmm. those are, you know, there's a chance for people to to go out and be glamorous for the night. Yeah. And, but also. I've created a lot of performances and installations for many a different parties, including like the old skin to rubber balls back yeah. uh, back in the day. And then, like, uh, I think I worked with um, Torture Garden in London for about a decade. Wow. Yeah. So I'd go back there for the big events and. And do performances, and yeah, it's like the the attraction of these events is that there there's a, a open sexuality. You know, everyone is here has at least this level of sex. You know, sex on their mind. They may not be. Uh, basically, it takes you can't you can't be prudish to come to these I, events. Yeah, I don't know if I'd necessarily limit it to sexual. I would cons- I would call it. Uh, visual aesthetic sensuality, mm-hmm. yeah. Because who knows what their private sex lives yeah. are like? But it's definitely a a visual aesthetic uh, sensuality. So there's definitely a performative aspect and a visual aspect. Uh, and okay, so for those of you who've never been to like a major uh, fetish themed party, it is essentially a giant dress up nightclub party. Uh, some places may have play or sensual interaction areas. Some places may not. Uh, some places, essentially, it's a big, giant dance party with uh, a bunch of different rooms and bars, etc. I've, I've performed and put in installations at a lot of different ones. Mm-hmm. As aforementioned, Rubber Ball and Torture Garden, but also uh, parties in Sydney, Australia, Melbourne, Australia, um, Tokyo, Japan. Um, Just a se- few little places. Yeah, New York, several places in San Francisco. Uh, Chicago, certainly. Toronto, big one in Toronto, right? Um, let's see, what have I done? Have, have I done anything in South America? Not so much down there. Um, but it's very different than, say, like a play party or a sex party. It's definitely a nightclub. A lot of them have stages with performances or fashion shows, spectacles, and uh, certainly a bunch of uh, great bars. Spectacles are definitely a good... I mean, that, that's yeah. one of the big things that draws people out. It's like, you know, they want to be part of mm-hmm. the sh- part of the spectacle within themselves, within the audience. Like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, my recent trip to Tokyo with going to Department H, half the show was the audience mm-hmm. dressed up, and that was the spectacle. But you also have the stage show. Yeah. And I'm just, now, Department H is a kind of a smallish thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but it's, it's Japan. Yeah. It's Japan, and it's, you know, it's still a... You know, comparable nightclub. Yeah, though, like the Tokyo Fetish Ball was big. They had like mm-hmm. six hundred people. You yeah, know, they took over a big eating venue. Yeah, I wish I had timed it better. Yeah. My trip, but you know. Yeah. But the that just I was mean, just thinking about you know like after after doing performance for so long, mm-hmm. how do you keep the spectacle going? 
you know, what at certain point, you know, the, you get the jaded club person's like, oh, I've seen that. I've done, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's nothing new. You know, I don't perform for the jaded club person. Mm-hmm. Um, I work with the producer or promoter around themes and ideas. I'll ask them about, you know, whatever limitations that there might be, spatial limitations, um, you know, like the ceiling's only this high, or they have this equipment but not that equipment. Uh, maybe there's a particular theme. I don't like to be told what to perform. Mm-hmm. Um, I like parameters. Within parameters, I'll make several different um, uh, proposals. It has to satisfy me first. Um, it's not that I have a particular performance that I bring out to each. And, and, you know, I've, it's not that I have a set set of acts. Right. Each one is a unique art piece. It just so happens that the art piece, the performance art piece, is being done in a nightclub environment. So what I find interesting is bringing in, uh, uh, be bringing in, what do I call it? Um, creative and uh, like very very adventurous contemporary performing art pieces into venues that are outside of traditional art institutions. I love bringing these to art institutions, but I also love um, I love bringing the dangerous into the art institutions, but I also love bringing art into the nightclub and the more um, the gutter bri- bridge between the two. It's yeah, it's interweaving it. So there might be a crowd of five thousand watching a performance that I do at a nightclub, but some of those will understand the artistic and performative element of it, and others, if they just think, wow that's really different and kind of cool and there's something that they're awakening to that's fine mm-hmm. yeah and for the the fine art institutions well by bringing in something that's maybe thematically or um symbolically or psychologically dangerous that from the other side of the tracks mm-hmm. that from the other side of the, sense the of danger yeah yeah bringing in that which Maybe challenging the notion of what is art, and like, why not? Yeah. Like the opening party for the Asian Art Museum's exhibit, Seduction. Yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. Well, you know, like, and there was a um, so a bit about that. Okay, the a- San Francisco Asian Art Museum. We're going to backtrack and give some yeah. framework here. The San Francisco Asian Art Museum is one of those giant um, art institutions that's well regarded. It is a research and conservation facility that certainly has a um, couple, 3,000 years easy of ancient uh, Near East and Far East Asian artwork. But it is also a venue for contemporary Asian art and Asian American art. A lot of people tend to think of the Asian Art Museum as old scrolls and baskets. Yeah, collections of what happened. Not Yeah, you know, statues from India 3,000 years ago, which they certainly have. And the st- those statues from India's? I mean, we're talking naked hot sex, man. Mm-hmm. We're talking boobs. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you got to go see this stuff. But it is also an, a venue for living art, art that's being created now. It is a world-class institution. Maybe I'm biased because I'm a San Franciscan, but I think it's actually better than the Sackler Asian Art Museum in D.C., <laughs> so take that. Um, Glove is thrown down. Yes, the Sackler is good. The San Francisco Asian's better, and it's a huge institution. You tend to think of this as, you know, the 
the hoity-toity and the well, art the, lovers. It's definitely it has you know, your classical like marbled facade. I mean, yeah. it's this gorgeous, oh yeah, huge Corinthian columns buildings. and. Last neoclassical Greek architecture, mm-hmm. right? Greek Roman, Greco-Roman architecture, and it's you know placed right in Civic Center, yeah. in San Francisco, and amongst these other like the Opera House, ballet, symphony, Asian art, yeah. So it definitely has like you know this is the center of San Francisco's art. legitimate art. And right? What did you do to that place? <laughs> well, what I did to that place, well. They have an amazing exhibition that just opened, and it's called The Floating World. It focuses on Edo period woodblock prints and life in the pleasure quarter, the demi-monde of of Edo, which is the old name for Tokyo. And the central piece is this huge scroll. I think it's like 58 feet scroll around the life in the pleasure quarters. I haven't actually had a chance to see the exhibit yet. Oh, it's so awesome. Darling, we'll go. Okay? I got a membership. I'll take you. Um... And it's about life in the Pleasure Quarter, which has tea houses and theater and kabuki actors and brothels and courtesans and life of a good time. They also have artifacts of that life, like the, the amazing kimonos and the tea sets and the sake sets. And and these would, these would be the equivalent of, like, you know, Hollywood type. I mean, like we don't, like, our cities don't have the segregated sections mm-hmm. of, of entertainment, because you know, when saying it's the pleasure district, it's also like the entertainment district. It's Broadway and old Forty Second Street, yeah. uh, all that combined. Yeah, it's the West End in London, Broadway, and and the the sleaze of the old Times Square, all combined and rolled in one. And it was actually a walled quarter that was sanctioned by the government. So that was that's the the exhibition. It's up now. It's called The Floating World, and you must check it out. It's amazing. There's so, naughty bits in the exhibit, I oh, understand. Oh, yes. And if you go to this one discreet little corner, there's a, a screen. There's there's a book that's that's open to two pages, and there's a screen uh, tablet next to it. And the tablet has a little lid on it that says explicit content. You have to lift it, and then you see essentially um, Edo porn. <laughs> oh, yeah, Edo porn. Full on, tab A, slot B, and what happens in in the Pleasure Quarter brothels. Uh, so it's there. I mean, it's Edo porn, right? So Mark Mayer, the, the education department uh, coordinator and the curator there, invited me to create the opening night party. And this is actually party as performance art to create an immersive experience that is relevant to and significant to the exhibition. So... He showed, I got a preview of the content of this exhibition, which is amazing. And then it was up to me to create a conceptual foundation. So I came back with a proposal. Now, Tokyo is my other hometown. Uh, raised in Tokyo into my teenage years. And then as an adult, San Francisco has been home of my, my heart, my spirit. And, and so. And your mail. And my mail. <laughs> and my mail. And my cats. And uh, then it suddenly occurred to me that here we are in 2015 San Francisco as we're experiencing another boom town year. And San Francisco is a boom town. You can tell by all the construction going oh, up yeah. everywhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a boom town. And it has always been a boom town since, well, you know, 1849. So it suddenly occurred to me that there is this grand parallel between old Edo and San Francisco. 
And I wanted to bring that, I, I wanted to take the two times and overlap it. I did not want people to look at the scrolls and the artifacts and think of this as some precious, honorable, ancient Japanese way. The way that there's this like insipid orientalization and offensive exoticization of looking at the you know ancient Japanese way. No, these are regular people who wanted good booze, good entertainment, pretty boys and pretty girls around them. Hang out with their friends and you know, pretty much socialize. Like. Yeah, and enjoy their newfound wealth. So instead of exoticizing and imagining this, this old Japan to be some other, to draw the exact parallel, the two cities. All right, so you've got San Francisco 2015 and Edo in uh, 18th and 17th century. These are both port towns facing into the Pacific. We have the Pacific Rim in common. So port towns facing the Pacific with a boomtown economy. We've got an old upper class. You have a new moneyed class with money to spend. They want the pleasures. They want the elegance of the old upper class, but they want the vibrancy, spark of life, and, and the naughtiness of what they imagine the denizens of the shadow world would have. And when I say the denizens of the shadow world, I'm talking about the workers, whether it be the actors, the stagehands, the theater producers, the brothel owners, the courtesans, the prostitutes, the chefs, the cooks, the tea house worker, um, the delivery boys. All the, the people that make the fantasy happen. All the people, yeah, it's, it's life south of market. It's all the people that make the fantasy happen. And these are the very people that may be being displaced by a new booming economy, that may be struggling in the shift of the economy, at the same time, they are needed to provide the entertainment. They may also be uh, socially inconvenient or out of caste in different sections. Same thing that's going on in San Francisco. So to draw the parallel. And if you were to take the, the social so position and... Just an example of that. Uh, just re was talking with uh, Sister Flora on the way. We were driving by Du Bois and Market, and there's this new building has gone up. And he, they were saying that the apartment there was $10,000 a month. Yeah. And I was like, who has this money? Yeah. There's apartments of 10000 bucks a month in an area that used to be considered a bit of a ghetto, mm -hmm. you know? And those that lived in, in the margins of society, that provide the entertainment. So the equivalent of the social position and the occupations of back in the day, the courtesans, the singers, the dancers, the tea house workers, the brothels, workers and the prostitutes. Today's equivalent. So high-level courtesans, we're talking glamorous drag queens, we're talking the geisha, who are not prostitutes, but rather entertainers. Think of them as a neo-burlesque ingenue dancers. Think of, think of the equivalent of the famous actor that might be on a ukiyo-e print would be the rock star, the painted face, glamorous, over-the-top rock stars in that Kiss David Bowie kind of way. Um, well, the soldiers, a soldier. The sailors, a sailor. The servant, uh, the, you know, the maid's a maid. Uh, servant's a servant. The customer of a brothel's a customer. A John is a John. <laughs> and um, yeah, uh, and so instead of putting people into oh, just horrible Hollywood versions of an imagined Japan, I brought the equivalent of the San Francisco of today. So you've got the gorgeous bearded drag queens 
you've got the burlesque dancers. I had uh, there was one guy that was like the accountant of a oh. of accountant of a tea house. He was so funny, brilliant, mm -hmm. walking around with a giant oversized calculator and clipboard and stuff in a suit. But then the uh, baby pacifier, baby pacifier with lips on it, right? And then there's a clergy, which of course was also present back in the day, but representing clergy in San Francisco would be the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And we also had a Buddhist monk as well. So, and then they were wandering around. We had ongoing stage performances. We, uh, um, oh, and back in the day in Edo, the very literate and poetic courtesans would be hired to write love letters and, and poems. And how did you have that represented in the party? We had a... Um, we had a bearded beatnik with a beret and a skirt writing love letters for people, tapping it out on an old mechanical typewriter. And we also had, because so often the courtesans were in many ways confessors and the place by which people could speak their personal truths. Therapists. Like therapists or confessors. We had Jason Wyman who ended up making this little private area for people to confess their sexual desires, and he would turn them into erotic haikus. My God, that was popular. Mm -hmm. And the Theater of Yugang, which is an amazing theater troupe in town that do contemporary as well as traditional Japanese performances, actually did Geisha House drinking games on stage. That was great. And uh, our friend Samar did a beautiful interpretation of Japanese folklore of the fox girl turning herself into a human woman. A modern dance piece that was stunning. So you know, basically just kind of took over the Asian Art Museum for oh, a Oh, not <laughs> only did we take it over, my goodness. I mean, we were, our performers were everywhere. And into, oh, and the flattery courtesans were adorable. We had lovely little ingenues uh, running around and interacting and talking and flattering people because the whole thing about the pleasure quarter in Japan was to be in that moment to feel profoundly desired. So it was uh, the flattery courtesan's job to go around and acknowledge people and, and let them be special in the way that each of them are. So that was lovely. Oh, my God. And then the mean courtesans. <laughs> there were a couple of gorgeous, gorgeous drag queens walking around just generally being bitter. And they ended snarky. up. Oh, snarky, snarky, snarky. And they ended up with this whole fan following. Yeah, it's like what you were explaining it before. Like they took a couple beats for these, you know, older patrons of the. Yes the museum to catch on but once they did they're like oh you've got to come see it and drag all their friends to to get to be mean uh, to be uh, snarked upon <laughs> they came over to get snarked upon by glamorous drag queens oh my god <laughs> so this was your first big event at asian art museum or have you done installations there before ah this is oh oh and one more thing this was like the biggest ticket sales and attendance they have ever had for an opening night party at the Asian in the history of the entire Asian Art Museum. Oh, my God. So this was the biggest thing I've done. But it's actually my second appearance and performance at the Asian. Okay. Yeah, and the first one that I did was um, a, a dance installation. It's called the Ivoko. And uh, I appeared in my alter ego, the Yamamba, the crazy old Japanese lady, and I created a giant flower arrangement on two dancers. So uh, the the piece at the very end was about eight feet tall, mm -hmm. and this slow-moving 
beautiful floral piece built around two stunning dancers. And they were both actually in the um, opening night party as well. One was Samar and the other was three. Hmm. They were moving as well? or They were moving. Okay. Oh, no. They, they, I would add more flowers and they would move and I would add more flowers and they would move. I would intertwine them and then I painted them with sumi ink. And then I created imprints of their painted bodies onto sheets of paper. Later on, I will take those sheets of paper and paint on them with gold leaf and gold paint and they will be put into scrolls, which is my body of work of um, artifacts and impressions of moments of beauty. And it, it's a physicalization of of the change of memory, how memory is both neurologically and subjectively changing every time we recall it. Right. You know, the whole emotional uh, emotional state of your current your current emotional state affects how that memory is translated into. True. Also neurologically too. Every time you recall a memory, it changes changes or enforces a, a neurological pathway in your brain. So, it makes a new connection to the mm -hmm. schemata. Right. So every time you recall an incident, intense experience of beauty, or any experience, in this case I'm focusing on experience of beauty, um, it changes that experience. So every act of recollection is actually a discrete experience. So in my performing it, there are those who see it and experience it in the moment. And every person that then thereafter recalls that night has a discrete experience. But then there's a photographic evidence of it. Then there is the process of printing it in each. And as I print on it, as I, uh, as I make the imprint, as I paint on it, as I put it in a scroll, and then it's viewed in a gallery, then that becomes a discrete experience. So, yeah, um, you can just come and look at the beautiful, beautiful flower arrangement on stunning dancers. But then even that has a conceptual framework. So for the the floating world party, uh, we you know you were you were my well you were my left hand guy so you were my sinister hand ah and my right hand guy and my left hand guy and we as the the uh, creative core team we had I think about eighty people I think all together I think wow yeah because um because. Uh, the roving performers, the strays alone, we called them the Yoshiwara strays. Yoshiwara was the name of the pleasure quarter in Edo. Um, so we had almost 40. Yeah. Just them. And, and then, then the, Yogan, and the, then the support staff. And then, and then we then had the different staff. performers, the main stage wow. performers. So it, it was a group of about 80 people, and we entertained about 2,000 people. Yeah. That's the biggest stage and biggest thing I've ever done. So, yeah, I'm, I think I'm still. It it was a couple weeks before I a couple weeks before I came down to being close to normal, whatever that <laughs> is. Or at least the the the, the initial or the, the buzz mm -hmm. feeling of. I mean, I, I come to a lot of performance. I, I always jokingly say that a lot of performance for me is is my drug. You know, like getting up on stage or do, doing that kind of thing. And, oh, seeing, it is. and seeing the reaction and, and knowing that I've affected all of these people mm -hmm. is you know, what drives me to perform. Oh, and people had so much fun. And the Asian Art Museum took a really big chance by throwing that party. It mm -hmm. was amazing. And we were a little naughty. I mean, we were even handing out porn. 
Oh, a pornogami. See, the thing is, they were showing porn there. It just happened to be 400 years old. So what I did was I took vintage porn, you know, like 60s, 70s, 80s um, playboys and made cranes out of them. And we gave them out to people. So if you take this piece of um, ephemera, um, visual imagery that's meant to titillate and entertain, right? Right. And the way that I figure out a lot of art is porn plus time equals art. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I remember you coming up with that math, yeah. that equation. And it's brilliant. Porn plus time equals art. And then you take that piece of porn and make a fine little piece of origami that then you can possess on your own. It's pornogami. <laughs> and they loved it. I know. <gasps> I think we ran out at the end of the night. Yeah, we, like you know, the people were at, you know, um, we had this great fishmonger. Oh, oh yes, the fishmonger and Mr. Uh, Gray. Great answer. And yeah. at the end of the night, just like giving out, and there were people were flocking to him to get the pornogami. Oh, bundle. he was funny. He was a fishmonger slash cook, and, uh, and juggler. Juggler, yeah. He looked like that, like angry diner cook. Mm. You know, with the apron and a white wife beater, and he had fish-shaped juggling um, tools. What are those uh, called? Um, not batons. But uh, the things you juggle, but he was juggling fish. Yeah, he had, uh, not bats. God, I'm lost for words. Anyways, he, he, he painted them fish-looking fish juggling sticks. Yes, yes, and it was so funny. And they loved them, cause, and then all of our... Character actors and our roving strays w went around and totally interacted with people in character. Oh my God, the maid, the French maid. Mm -hmm. <gasps> yeah. She was adorable. At one point, some, there was a spilled drink on the stairs and she actually got down on all fours to clean it up, even though she she's, she's a performer, but still, she was into the into the role. Oh, she was dusting and cleaning and this adorable little, like, frilly petticoat. And yet she had, you know, like, full on, like, you know, your classic French maid look, but with, like, you know, glam rock face makeup oh, yeah, and, yeah. and bright hair and yeah. completely David Bowie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that, that was a fun night. Oh, that was amazing. That was amazing. And then everybody dancing late into the night. I think they had to actually kick people out. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, it was fabulous. So what's next then? Oh, what's next? Well, I've actually been invited. This this is quite Curvy, sexy, and arty all at once. My the, kind. Yes, the Antebellum Gallery in Hollywood, down Southern California. They're doing a show called the Dog and Pony Show. And okay. um, yeah. Uh, are we talking real dogs and ponies, or are we talking. No, we're talking the bipedal kind. We're talking people playing the fantasy of the intersection between dogs, ponies, and people. Oh so it might be people with dogs and pony heads on, but also echoes of ancient mythology where bull-headed man in a maze or the centaur or the jackal-headed god. Um, the gallery, Antebellum Gallery, is owned by Rick Castro, who's an amazing photographer and artist. And, and uh, the, the gallery tends to focus on gay male art, but also challenging and adventurous contemporary art pieces with oftentimes dealing with gender, sexuality, identity, and tough topics, or sometimes cheeky and fun and funny mm -hmm. with a bit of a conceptual jab right behind it. So um, 
I heard first from Michael Manning, who does amazing oh. illustrations and erotic art that intersects mythology and imagination, eroticism, and the primal. He has his own mythology. That he's oh, it's, his world crafting is amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also know Dorian Katz, who's done some uh, really controversial and vibrant imagery. It, it's almost like an echo of that 11th century Japanese scroll wh where it's um, rabbits and by, uh, um, anthropomorphized rabbits. Or the, 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 like the fox's wedding? Yeah, yeah, like that, where uh, anthropomorphized animals are going about engaging in human behavior. Well, instead of being the children's version of it, this is the adult version. So Dorian Katz does really interesting things around that. Oh, quite naughty and mm -hmm. quite challenging and really it but then when you think about it from ancient Greek mythology and Egyptian um cosmology, the intersection of humans and animal has always been there. Has always been there. Yeah. So I made from, a proposal. Passed on up. Oh yeah, and I um, speaking of kitties, yeah. Um, yeah, and I made a proposal, and Rick Castro loved it, and so I'm going to be doing this. It's going to be a seven foot tall, a seven foot tall Anubis statue made of uh, vines, plants, uh, willow, flowers much like the wicker man so mm -hmm. anubis is the jackal-headed god and he will be in the front window i will be installing it live on site and because it will be made of plants and flower material oh the opening night is uh the first saturday night i think that's august 1st of first saturday night of august i'm going to be doing the finishing touches then um, he will be anatomically correct, though because it is a front window, he will have a um, uh, floral loincloth <laughs> to appropriately a cover that. A modesty loincloth. Yes, yes. And so a seven-foot-tall jackal-headed god. And uh, I have some other things that I'm working out around that. For the opening party, mm. I'm su assuming there will be a bar of some type. You should steal a pa borrow a page from the Wicked Grounds playbook and make sure there's dog bowl service. Oh, good one, indeed. Yeah, I'm gonna see if I can uh, get some. I, I can see. I want to see if I can talk some friends into uh, uh, having uh, uh, dog and horse hats on. Maybe get it from Siren and Stockroom, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, and and walk around all like that, exploring their more animal magnetism. <laughs> so, and I plan to have some other smaller accompanying, it, it, all in the same installation artwork that people can get. Now the the art show will go on for eight weeks. Now, my piece is intended to slowly decay over that time. Mm. I love the scent of fresh flowers, but I even more love the scent of flowers and plants slowly drying and decaying. Oh, it just, that just brings back a uh, memory of one of your older installations. That uh, One of the first ones I worked with you on, uh, Feminine Potent, the, the Maze. Ah, Pathweb Choice. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. that one had that very earthy, earthy. smell. That yeah. Once you got it, it was it was so well segregated too. Because with um, so there's this large piece that was had pretty much wall to ceiling. I mean, floor to ceiling uh, panels of fabric that created this intricate uh, maze spiral. Yeah, it was a spiral yeah. or uh, yeah. spiral around. And on one side, it was just 
simple rock and white and clean and the other side it was very mm -hmm. earthy you know and you would step around into the, the new chamber and that chamber held that smell in so you didn't mm -hmm. get it until you actually walked into that chamber you know i realized Actually, only recently that I've been working with the olfactory element mm -hmm. in a performance for quite some time. It's been present way early on, and it still continues to this day. I did a performance at the Yuba Buena Center for the Arts, and it was called Hodoku, to unravel. And it was this giant ball that was wrapped in ribbon and a movie playing in the background. And the end of the the ribbon on the giant ball is handed to the audience. There were about 200 people there. They'd pull and they passed the ribbon around, and as they pulled, this big sphere would spin as this movie, this frenetic movie of the stresses of modern life played behind. This giant ball spin, 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 and then when it stops, when the end of the ribbon happens, the end of the ribbon disappears into the giant orb, and the orb stops spinning and then splits open like a lotus blooming. Right. And out comes from it this flood of fragrance of flowers because in it I'm sitting in there holding a giant bouquet of white flowers right and it just it's been cooking inside this <laughs> orb and so it just explodes into you being the heating element yes and uh, the end of that ribbon was actually pierced onto my tongue quite literally connecting me and every single member of the audience wow. and I am covered in clay. I'm naked. I'm covered in clay. And I am wearing chest plates of bone. And my hair is all matted and mudded and dreaded. And the character is called the Ancient One. She's about 5,000 years old. And she harks from like 5,000 years back. And she slowly, and she is blind. And she slowly emerges from this orb and walks into the audience and out while the smell of the flowers fill the, the theater. So I've been working with an olfactory element yeah. the whole time. And down at the Antebellum Gallery, the anubis will scent, but also will slowly decay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And um, I'm working on some other little uh, sculpture pieces that go with it that are living sculpture pieces that people can take home with them. You definitely like the ephemeral. I do, I do. And then because it's never going to be, the, you're right, you know, things that, that change and, and decay. And then the, the realm of the sense, the, the realm of the scent, olfactory senses don't get used enough, I think. And yet they theater. have a strong tie to memory. Powerful, right? So you recall the smell yeah. of uh, the soil and the plants in the path web installation. Mm -hmm. yeah. Very much so. Yeah. People apparently, while that installation was up, would come in and come in during their lunch hours and sit in the, because what I brought in was the forest to the interior. And I've heard that apparently people would bring their lunchtime selves into the interior dark forest, sit down and have lunch. Which is really cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so um we've covered a lot of like great art. What's what's the downtime, Midori? What is downtime? <laughs> okay, what is the cat time, Midori? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's see. Um 
when I mean, I'm just, what do you what do you nerd out about? What, okay, what else do you nerd out? Actually? What else? Well, I I obviously nerd. Okay, for fun, I go to museums and art galleries, yeah. and I, I completely nerd out over that. I've actually uh, um, traveled. I I I will travel to go see amazing art exhibits. Um, but I, I'm also like a bodywork junkie. Today I got a Korean scrub, mm. which I so needed. Oh my god! Um, the other things I love, man, I I do love the gardening and I love outdoors and um, uh, scuba diving. Hey Kumi, need to plan that scuba diving trip <laughs> trip again. I love Kumi's. Kumi's a friend of ours. Is Kumi the one that got you hooked into scuba diving? No, nah, I got into scuba just, scuba long ago. You're just someone that you, yeah. you can work with. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, she lo- she's an awesome diver. She so knows what she's doing. I love going on dive trips. Now, she has a tendency to do cold water dives, which, fine, I'm starting to work on. But um, I, I really prefer, well, let's see, our recent trip to Mexico was great. But I love scuba diving. Um, I love flying with the fishies. That's great. Mm. Um, did you know that you can hear Kumi talking and screaming underwater? <laughs> <laughs> through dive gear I no I, I mean, it's like you know I, I, I've I've never gone scuba diving yeah. myself I only know what I know from media and stuff like that so but the, I, I could tell when there was a cool fish because I'd hear this I'd feel this ear piercing kumi shriek through the water which is amazing but yeah diving with her is great she's a really awesome diver um uh, I'm a, I'm a, you know, moderately good diver, but oh man, I just love it. The only problem with diving is it makes me hungry for fish. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, fish, fish. yeah. And I love, um, weirdly, I actually love weeding and weeding like pulling plants, not mm-hmm. the smoking kind. Right. Uh, got a big backyard, and I'm not so much a gardener, like actually planting new things. I just love playing in the dirt. <laughs> playing in the dirt and uh there we go back to your smells yeah and you know we're, we're doing a slow bit of habitat restoration in our backyard we have a bunch of uh, i've found a whole bunch of california slender salamanders and ground bees and jerusalem crickets and unfortunately there are the gophers yes but um but there are some really amazing uh critters in my backyard that's mm. great yeah and uh are you like you said you weren't like you know, you've got a lot of critters, but like what do you what are you planting? Oh, um, let's see. I've got a couple of um, grape arbors. There's this poor kiwi, male female plant that they keep growing, but they I don't know. They're not they're not fruiting. I don't know what's what I'm doing wrong in the. But the culinary plum is delicious, really delicious. Um, it's tough growing because you know we've had this terrible drought here. Yeah. yeah. But I've like got a lot of now? oh, it's awful, awful. So, but we do have a lot of great um, uh, edible natives like the oxalis. I actually harvested a whole bunch of um, uh, oxalis and miner's lettuce from the backyard and delivered it to uh, Chef Chris over at Our Gourmet Life. Mm-hmm. So. That was nice. Um, Our Gourmet Life. Have you ever been to a dinner with them? Yeah. Uh, <gasps> yeah. I, Actually, I had this amazing first date to an Argonne Life <gasps> dinner. Wow! And it was okay. Um, so for those of you who don't know, yeah. go check out Argonne Life online because they do private erotic dining experiences. First of all, the food is just top-notch gourmet food, and then there's the, the oh my god, the beautiful waitstaff and um, 
It's a private erotic dinner. I'll just leave it at that. It's it's because of them. I know the phrase amuse bouche. I've I've been I've loved that phrase ever since too. But yeah, I went on a a first date. I took somebody as a first date to uh, a uh, our my life at a private space that was for a friend's birthday, and. It, it was, I'll just say it was, I don't think a porn script could have covered as well as that, as fun as that night was. Yeah, and the first time I went, I felt like I walked into um, uh, erotic French tableau or some private dinner in Weimar, Germany, Weimar, mm. Berlin. Oh my God. Or a Kubrick movie? Yeah, mm. and see, my um, uh, I do a women's dominance weekend intensive. I, I lead this called Fort FM, and... We have our private Saturday night. The San Francisco Fort FM has their private Saturday night dinner there. Mm. Oh, it's stunning. Yeah, so I delivered a whole bunch of um, organic uh, oxalis and... Homegrown. Yeah, homegrown, native, sustainable, organic uh, veggies from my backyard to Chef Chris. That was nice. Mm. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, just lovely stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, another thing, I, I remember when I first going back, going to Doctor Who for a minute because that's oh one yes, of, one of my geeky loves since I was a kid. And I remember when shortly after the uh, Empty Child Doctor Dances aired, you were one of the first people I contacted, going, "Oh, look at what Doctor Who do is doing! Is doing so good!" Because I just saw the Captain Jack character yes. being introduced. And I remember you were one of the people that was very excited to like, look, look, they're doing it. They're doing it right. <gasps> Captain Jack. Oh, Captain Jack. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I actually uh, last month went to Gallifrey One, which mm-hmm. is this big Doctor Who convention in L.A. Uh, and John Barrowman was the guest of honor. Oh, and, you know, and I saw John Barrowman as Jaja and Lacage mm. in London. Oh, oh, my God. I'm envious. He's so dirty. He He's is. so sexy. Oh, he, so they... So he did a talk in front of mm-hmm. in the big room, and it it was just he is so animated, and so just bounced all over the place, and to the point where like you know he's having the whole audience do waves and stuff like that, and then recording it on his phone, and just so genuinely alive and joyous. Yes, and it's infectious. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there was you know he. He kept like pushing the line, but then coming back because he's like, "There's kids right here." It's like, "All right, whose kids are these?" And no one claimed the the three like you know eight to twelve year old. And mm-hmm. I was like, "All right, do you want to come live with uh, with Uncle John? I've got a pool. And I've got you know uh, this and this and this. And if you're bad, I've got a Dalek. <laughs> Exterminate! Exterminate! Oh my God! Am I? Yes, I am a nerd. I'm totally a nerd. I love science fiction. Oh my God! I think you still have my Shadowrun books. Do I? Maybe I, when you were yeah. working on yeah. uh, uh, the the novel uh, Hans, uh, uh, Master Hans' Master daughter. Hans' daughter. So Master Hans' daughter is a collection of short story that I said. Okay, so the floating world art mm-hmm. thing is Tokyo of the past. Master Hans' daughter is set in Tokyo in the future. It's a collection of short stories of. Uh, near future, cyberpunk Tokyo, and it is filthy, nasty, dirty, dark. It's uh, several of the stories are erotic horror, cyberpunk, 
So I've slowly been actually adding to a collection for volume two. Ooh, Ooh the one I just wrote, uh, so not right. <laughs> And it, and a lot of these stories come from like singular little vignettes that are like pop into my head. Right. And then I have to explain the story. But I have to uncover the story because I don't actually know how that vignette came to be. And it was actually the opening scene of this short story. And a woman wakes up in a room, a white cube room, with no recollection of how she got there. And she can't remember who she is. She's in a nighty that is um, bloodied and as she looks around the room there seems to be completely destroyed shredded remains of one or more people no doors no windows four walls white blood splattered no furniture no furniture um, just a white cube and no memory. That's, yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. And that's creepy. where the story starts. <laughs> yeah. So that, that took a while for me to figure out where it went. But mm -hmm. yeah, there's, yeah, the stories aren't right in the Master Han series. But then I'm writing another book right now. It's a three book collection. There's three of us authors. I gotta finish it. Um, I know what I'm doing this week, next mm -hmm. week. No, this week I'm I'm traveling to teach again. But next week I gotta work on those two, the final scenes for my book. Um, tentatively titled "The Silk Threads." It's three books, past, present, and future in an imagined Japan. Mm -hmm. And the past is written by Laura Antonou of the Marketplace series. Yes. The future is written by Cecilia Tan, Circle of Press. And I'm writing the present. And mine, mine is kind of like, um, do you remember Northern Exposure? Oh, yeah. City doctor goes to live somewhere. Basically, it's, you know, it's uh, tuition paid for for like, was it eight years of living out in the middle of Alaska? Yeah. Right. With the moose in the street. Yeah. So it's like Northern Exposure meets True Blood in Japan. Hmm. And instead of vampires and werewolves, we've got foxes and tengus and uh, uh water trolls and all that yeah so yeah northern exposure meets true blood set in tokyo and set in japan in a village in japan and it's a bit of romantic comedy with supernatural fight sequence because you can yeah yeah it's fun it's <laughs> totally fun yeah and so i'm working on that in my copious free time which we covered earlier <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, did it, you know, it's like the whole, I guess, you know, the, the imagined worlds of science fiction and fantasy and stuff that is, you know, going back to the spectacle that we were talking about earlier mm -hmm. and how word like thoughts are throwing up my, in my head. I'm trying to lay them out into coherence here. I apologize. But it's like, you know, why, why do you think what, what draws people to such you know, like science fiction is probably and fantasy is probably at its height of cultural acceptance right now. I mean, you know, we've got mm -hmm. superhero movies up the wazoo. We've got, mm -hmm. you know, you know, and part of it could be that we've had 50 years of Star Trek going on, seeding the possible thoughts 
Well, it's all exploration of mythology and fairy tale. Yeah. It is all about exploring mythology and fairy tale. And, and the and generating yeah. mythology and fairy tale. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's yeah, it's one thing it's you know, very American. But the old the, the classic archetypes replay. Oh yeah. You know, the classic archetypes are replaying. Uh and what I'm really enjoying right now are the ambivalent heroes and the ambivalent uh, villains that it's not always good guys bad guys mm -hmm. and uh it's exploration exploration of the human psyche in that sense right yeah. and the thing is we are living in a science fiction world here's this tiny little device smaller than a deck of card yeah. that i have that i can make my world around make my way around the world I can communicate to people all over the world. It gives me every bit of information that I want. Um, I long, can make as long as you have single, yeah. Right, and I can, I can access information and make things a reality. I can even engage in augmented reality, where where that which is underneath is revealed onto the the skin of and the perception. Of. We live in a science fiction we world, do. you know. I mean, definitely, like here's in our lifetimes, mm -hmm. the amount of progressive change. When cars are parallel parking themselves, and we're talking about driverless vehicles, yeah, um, you know, I'm still not sure of the flying cars because, man, traffic jams are bad enough as it is. Do I want, do I want that over my head? No. Yeah. You know, specific lanes. Um, I know it's just that we've got like the the, the pop culture has taken over. I mean, just thinking about, you know, like from 80s, 90s when I grew up and how, you know, then, you know, your, your big action star was just, you know, the lone cop or, mm -hmm. and now you're the person that is the idealized cultural is, you know, your superhero team mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. how, you know, well, how comic books and, and science fiction have gotten to such the forefront. Well, I also think that um, the culture of people that co-create, like the whole open source ethos mm -hmm. is reflecting into not only the superhero comics, but also in what's considered more productive business models. Instead of having the top-down, one you know character CEO-driven corporate or the top-down, flow of the corporate structure yeah. we're looking at more um open people that okay so corporations of old top down and also long term right mm -hmm. you're employed by a company and you know, i was talking to somebody of an older generation and they thought it was kind of weird that people change this whole gig economy and project based right right and how they saw people as going from job to job as being a sign of of failure whereas today if you are successful you're working with multiple different teams and you go from from project to project and it becomes a sign of success so what was once i mean it's almost in conflict with the cultural american idea of ideal of the you know the individual can do anything and mm -hmm. and and rises to the top now we're talking about you know the group a mm -hmm. group dynamic is you know everyone works successfully with the group and then and, but the group is formed on a project basis, yeah. right? So instead of being an ongoing employment situation, or for that matter, even whether it's the superheroes, instead of being an ongoing thing, these are individual characters that then come together for 
uh, a particular project. Right. So the the parallel that was which was considered both in terms of fringe genre literature, fringe genre art, fringe genre um, social organizational um, social organizational philosophy, mm-hmm. uh, fringe genre of relationship structuring, also romantic, yeah. right? So instead of having the two by two and ongoing, you've got uh, you've got project multiple based, different project-based romance. Well, yeah, sort of. Yeah, you know, you've got uh, multiple different relationships that fulfill different needs. Mm-hmm. So instead of being the the binary and the singular that is ongoing, we have matching the talents to the projects and the needs and looking at the necessity of the outcome and looking at co-creating something that is remarkable. So that ethos that used to be in the fringe of alternative relationships, alternative art, alternative entertainment, alternative business models, that has now become central. And also the place of the story. We've been talking about mythology, right? Mythology and fairy tale. The significance of having a story or a narrative to have the arc of a dynamic, uh, a symphonic art, um, a narrative arc, that language has also moved into the realm of the business as well as realm of um, not just creating art but also creating art and literature, but in how we create successful business. Where this is lagging in our society is in politics. Mm. In politics, they still have get into politics and rise up the food chain. And instead of looking at being task objective um, and project focus, it becomes survival of a career in a, a vertical model. So politics and activism Activism is already looking at that, right? Right. Looking at forming um, project-based or um, uh, goal, Mm purpose-based, cause-based, getting together, right? But the classic politics, as we look at... Is it very old? You know, is is old a model? We're talking 19th century model. And the people that have it don't want to let go of it. No. And what if we actually challenged our political leadership to look at, you know what, it's not about your party alignment, but it is about, um, it's about what needs to get done. And yet we're in one of the most polarized uh, points in government. In right, because they're, well, looking at a 19th century model. Right. And, you know, they're looking at this like they're still Henry Ford in the age of Twitter. So politics is still in the age of Henry Ford, and they have not caught up in what everyone else is doing, and they're wondering why they're losing us, you know? They're losing us, yet they're not letting go. And at the same time, they have also lost the art of diplomacy, Mm. because that was the graciousness of the past that they've lost. So did we just make a big leap from superheroes to politics? Yes. And I'm okay with that. Yeah, you know, all right. Like, a, you know, this is a conversation that can go anywhere. That yeah, any leap, yeah. any magic, magic leaps we want. Yeah, yeah. But um, I mean, you know, of course, we live in this little San Francisco bubble, mm-hmm. and what one thing is like, 
what gets me with, you know, uh, was it a Huckleby that came out saying, you know, that there's, you know, the there's the liberals and then there's the rest of us who really understand how things are going. And I'm just, you know, like that whole, like there's divide between uh, the liberal and the, the right. And, mm-hmm. but what I wonder is like, if the right is getting so disconnected from reality, which is what it looks like from my liberal bubble standpoint, mm-hmm. who is supporting them? You know, who is that person that is supporting them? Well, let's see. Um, you know, my... I'm no political expert. I'm just looking at this from from out my little traveling the world, but from San Francisco vantage point, there seems to be a core people that are interested in just making their life comfortable. Mm-hmm. And then they seem to be supported by those who are ruled by fear of change. Yep. So, fear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've very condescendingly used the term sheep. Mm-hmm. But, and I admit that, I admit from my, you know, my perspective, I'm, liberally biased mm-hmm. that's why I lived here uh, yes <laughs> wanted to be with the people that are, think like me <laughs> welcome to the left coast yes yeah third coast to left coast well I, I'm sure we can go a lot more deeper into this but we've been talking for a while and I don't want to we made some we jumped all over the place oh my god from what Doctor Who to politics from to, our, to 16th century Japan to uh, how memory works yeah but I want to thank you very much for joining me and getting, oh, thank a, you. getting Psycho Kitty podcast rolling. Yeah, and I'm really excited that you're starting this. You're going to have some really cool... I mean, this... Okay, listeners out there, you know some really interesting cats out there. See, see who wants to come in and meow for a bit. Meow. So thank you for joining us and uh, look forward to more Paco, uh, Psycho Kitty podcasts in the near future. Thank you. <laughs>